Chapter Twelve of *The Hawk of Egypt* by Joan Conquest, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter Twelve: Hither and thither moves and mates and slays, and one by one back in the closet lays. Omar Khayyam. Hugh Carden Ali, with the dogs of Billy crushed in beside him, raced back to his palace in Cairo, and with the shaggy pair at his heels, passed to his side of the great house. His body-servant, as nimble as a monkey, as devoted as a dog, and almost dumb by reason of a tongue split in his youth for a misdemeanor, fell on his knees at his feet. He worshipped his young master, who had at one time rescued him from a savage, baiting crowd in the bazaar, and taking him into his service had made him his own particular servant. He equally loathed his master's austere bedroom and adjoining dressing-room, with simple furniture which had lately come from Billed el Inglis, a dark, cold country across the sea, where it rains without ceasing. And he helped strip his master of the hateful, tight, hot European clothes, and trotted joyfully after him to the swimming-bath, and watched him dive in and swing the length and climb out the other end, and disappear between the curtains into the luxurious rooms of the East. Having robed him, agog with curiosity, at a discreet distance, he followed the resplendent figure in his satin raiment, snow-white turban glistening with jewels and hooded falcon on wrist and cursed the dogs under his breath when they turned and growled softly but his curiosity was turned into a great amazement when his master passed into the court of the empty luxuriant perfumed harem where once had loved and quarrelled idled and fought so many beautiful women under the orders of the ethiopian eunuch giant twin of quatim in the service of zulana the courtesan the harem was kept swept and garnished, adorned with flowers, aglow at nights with a myriad soft lights hanging from the ceiling in jewelled lamps, to which were flung the fountain's perfumed drops, to fall and break on marble floor and silken cushion, inlaid table and bright-hued birds in jewelled cage. There does exist a different kind of harem, dirty, gaudy, ill-kempt, somewhat like the inmates, over the whole of which tis wise to draw a veil. The eunuch's banking's account, which was kept in a certain secret nook of the harem court, had become sadly depleted on account of his master's eccentric views as regarded women, but he still lived in hope, and delighting in intrigue, as every native does, had welcomed the advent of his ebony brother primed with gossip and suggestion. Therefore, upon the beating of the gong, which had not been struck for many weary moons, he hastened to the court and salaamed to the ground before his master, who sat upon a pile of cushions, guarded by the two shaggy dogs of Beely, with the amber mouthpiece of the jewel-encrusted Nargila between his lips and the falcon upon a padded perch beside him. "'Bring me a woman, to dance,' he curtly ordered, and the slaves sped to do his bidding, with visions of a big increase in the banking account hidden in a secret place. And when the dancer drifted in like a flower-petal upon a breeze, Hugh Carden Ali looked up slowly, letting escape a wisp of smoke from between his lips. The dancer wore one single garment of transparent black, hung from the shoulders by diamond bands, and through which her perfectly nude body shone like an ivory pillar. Her slender feet with crimsoned toes and heels were bare, the tiny hands ablaze with jewels. A huge bunch of orange-tinted, diamond-sparkled osprey was fastened in her jet-black hair. Across her face there hung a short, almost transparent veil, one corner of which she held between her teeth leaving to view the wonderful eyes, a heaven or hell of invitation, as you will. She danced as had danced her biblical sister to the pleasing of a king for the attainment of her desire, 
and she danced a humming a little tune behind the veil until the movement of her beautiful body and the knowledge of a man's eyes upon her went to her head like wine so that in the end by force of habit maybe she danced to conquer where she had only intended to interest as already mentioned she had the morals of a jackal she drifted down the court towards hugh carden ali and standing before him bowed her beautiful head to the level of her dimpled knees laughed gently, and was gone like a bird to a far corner of the court. She seemed to swing in the air like a lime-flower caught on the end of a spider's thread, as she came slowly down once more, to be blown hither and thither like a leaf before the gale as she ran here, sprang there, to the rhythm of the little tune she hummed, behind the wisp of veil, to undulate like a field of ripe wheat beneath the summer sun as she stood quite near the man who watched her, with a fraction of the interest he would have shown in the purchase of a dog or a falcon in the open mart. Her hennaed toes pressed firmly on the centre of a Persian rug of such antiquity as to render the pattern indecipherable. She moved her body from the slender waist downward not at all. The muscles of her arms and shoulders rippled, and her head moved, slightly but unceasingly, from side to side. How often one hears of the European's boredom whilst watching the notch-dance in which the Indian notch-girl, fully clothed, indeed high, tight bodice and ankle-length voluminous skirt, will drive her native audience clean crazy with the tapping of her feet and slight undulating movements of the slender body and rod-like arms. It is indeed the dullest thing on earth to watch if you are unable to follow and interpret every little movement. But if you can, well— the unexpurgated version of the Arabian Nights will be as milk and water compared to the heady brew offered for your consumption. And the old Harovian, sitting cross-legged upon a heap of cushions, with the smoke of the Nargila drifting from between his lips, smiled as he picked up the thread of the same old story, which had been spun for him when, an arrogant youth of twelve summers, he had ruled his house with no gentle hand. Otherwise he showed little interest, and felt no desire to lift the tantalizing veil. Neither did he turn his head, else might he have seen the ebony face of the Ethiopian eunuch peering from between a mass of flowers, from which point of vantage he watched the scene with intent to report thereon to his black twin brother. At last, and very slowly, and with a growing feeling of resentment in the place where her heart by rights should have been, Zulana sped down the court upon her toes, and fell at the edge of the piled cushions, causing the dogs to growl softly at her daring. "'Thou art a beautiful dancer, woman,' said Hugh Cardin Ali, making no movement to lift the veil. "'Behold, I have passed a pleasant hour, and would reward thee. What thou wilt. Money? Jewels? Speak.' From behind the wisp of veil which fluttered in the dancer's quick breathing came the barest whispered answer— I hear thee not, woman, raise thy voice, and be not afraid. I will give thee what thou desirest. One hour. The man bent forward to catch the words, and when their full import struck him, leapt to his feet, and catching the woman's wrist, jerked her upright, ripping the veil from before her face. Zulana! he cried, and sprang back, having heard of the lady's deft handling of her dagger when in the tantrums. Then he caught both wrists and held her pinioned, looking with loathing into the exquisite, furious face, whilst the great dogs, fangs bared, ruffs upstanding, sniffed suspiciously at the knees and waist, even rising on their hind legs to snuff the slender neck of the woman who had angered their master. For a second he held her with arms outstretched to breaking point, and hennaed toes barely touching the ground, 
then threw her across the cushions, whilst the dogs growled softly as they prowled, belly to ground, about the prostrate figure, and the ebony-hued eunuch tore at his woolly hirsute covering amongst the flowers. But courtesans have tears, as well as other kinds of women, and they use them every whit as effectively, perhaps a bit better, on account of the stoutness of their hearts. So that when the man ordered the woman to sit up, she sat up, wiped real tears from the innocent-looking eyes, rearranged her garments, and prepared for battle. Tuff might describe the rose-hued, satin-textured epidermis of the scarlet enchantress. Thou hast a great daring, woman. The courtesan knew not the meaning of the word hesitation, and was off with the still-born desire, and with her original business between the tossing and falling of a drop from the perfumed fountain, and ready with an explanation even before the man spoke. Thou hast misheard my words, Lord. Knowing by hearsay of thy hatred of women, I entered thy house as a dancer before thee, to gain as my reward one hour of speech with thee. Speech? Wherefore? Because I would help thee, and in helping thee help myself. Clasping her slender jewelled hands across her bosom, she looked up to the gilded ceiling, and sighed softly, whispered, I love. Thou? Yea, Lord, I love, and thou lovest, and nay, hear me, it is for thy advancement and mine, and he, the man for whom my soul turned to water, for whom I yearn, yea, if it be but for one single hour of his love, a memory of rose-time in the ash-pit of my years, he—she stopped. "'Tis wise to approach a wounded tiger warily, especially if you are not certain as to the extent of the hurt or the power of the weapon of defence in your hand. Sit, and speak quickly, for I would have thee gone." The man spoke curtly as he sank upon a pile of cushions, and pointed to one on the far side of the Persian rug, upon which the most courted woman in Egypt knelt, with her eyes full of gentleness and her heart pounding in a torment of rage and fear. Yea, I understand. Hugh Cardin Ali spoke wearily, being stricken with love. For ten solid minutes the woman had talked round her subject. Intuitive, she scented danger, usually fearless, her whole being was sick with apprehension— desperate, she dug her nails into her flesh, and essayed to reach her goal by a roundabout way. Then she stopped, sighed, and cast down her eyes, then raised them beseechingly when the man spoke. Fearing to use force against the, the woman who thou sayest is loved by the man thou lovest, and may the prophet bear witness that thy tale is as full of turnings and twistings as the paths in the bazaar in which thou spinnest thy web, thou wouldst tear her from him by craft." Explain thy seemingly futile words, and hasten thy lying tongue, for, behold, the hour of dawn approacheth. And the wrath in the voice was such as to hurl the woman pell-mell over the cliff of discretion, down into the depths of her own undoing. She, the white woman, walks in the bazaar, yea, even at noon and at sunset. Perchance one evening, lured by the tale of the riches of the house of Zulana, might not her feet stray within the portals at the setting of the sun? And, behold, the key of the great door is within these hands, and—and—the man's hands lay quietly on his knees, as he leant forward, and the shadows thrown from the flowering plants hid the twin pools of murder in the depths of his eyes. And—he whispered—and—she whispered back—would the white man, thinkest thou, take to wife her who had passed a night in the house of the courtesan? Would he not, without waiting for explanation, throw her into the filth of the bazaar, leaving her for the first comer to pick up, and turn himself to— She leapt to her feet, screaming, as his fingers closed round her wrist in a grip of steel, 
mad with fury, she tore her raiment and hair, raving obscenities in the vilest language of the lowest reaches of the bazaar, oblivious to the dogs which reared and fell and reared unceasingly behind her. "'The white woman who traipses the bazaar unveiled,' she screamed, "'the white virgin who flung herself into thy arms in the market-place, thou trafficker in foreign harlots, the—' Hugh Cardin Ali, the son of his father, to the innermost part of his being in the horrible scene, had made one little sign, and the dogs were upon her. With a sickening scrunch one caught the side of her head in the steel jaws which stretched from the nape of the neck to the corner of the mouth. With a sharp snap the other drove its fangs into the muscle behind the dimpled knee. They pulled her down and stood stock still, as these dogs are trained to do. Then, with crimson saliva dripping from the jaws, crimson lights shining in the eyes, let go their hold, and stood looking alternately from master to quarry, with slowly wagging tails. There was no sign of anger in the man as he sat tranquilly upon the cushions, the amber mouthpiece of the nargila between his lips, no sound of wrath in the gentle voice which bid the Ethiopian eunuch to remain prostrated upon the floor until the arrival of the other slaves, who could be heard pelting through the house from every direction in answer to the summons of the gong. "'Idraba,' he said quietly to four of the terror-stricken domestic staff, pointing to the eunuch, "'upon the soles of the feet, so that he walketh not for many a day, if ever.' And as the wretch was dragged screaming from the room, he beckoned to four others, and pointed to the body of the woman. "'Carry that out and throw it in the street, in such wise that it is not known from whence it came.' Touch not the jewels, lest thou sharest thy brother's fate. With falcon upon wrist and blood-stained dogs at his heels, he passed out of the ill-fated court to his own apartment, and having bathed and dressed himself, to his body-servant's grief, in hot European riding-kit, with boots from Peter Yap, tucked the cleansed dogs of Beely in beside him, and raced his car to the obelisk which is all that remains upright of the biblical city of On. The Ethiopian slave Quatim gathered up the broken body of the woman from the filth of the gutter, and carried her to his hovel, and flung her upon the filthy straw under which he hid the jewels he stripped from her body. End of chapter 12 Read by Sibella Denton For more information, please visit LibriVox.org